started our morning this morning with Dennis talking about resilience. And so this is our opportunity to experience and live resilience. So everybody up. Everybody stand up. And we're just going to move. So you've been in this room for a long time. We haven't had a lot of life. We're going to left, right. Just go up on your toes. Swivel your head. All right. Now we're going to get the blood flow. All right. Actually, you're doing a great job. So everyone, you're big swaying. And it feels really good. And the reason it feels really good is that our bodies were built to move. That's what we do. We're built to move. We're not built to be sitting in conference. Sorry, everyone can sit down. You've done a great job. Um, and so we had a lot of, of talks this morning about nature, that we do all of these things that are interfering with the natural rhythms of our bodies. So we talked about the circadian rhythms that Sachin talked about. That we have these natural biorhythms and because we have all these lights and, and travel and all these things, we're interfering with the natural functioning of our biology and our ecosystem. We also talked about processed foods and how our bodies are just not designed for these complex processed foods that have a bunch of ingredients that we've never even heard of and just mushed up bad stuff. And so if we listen to all of this, as we should, we think, well, what are the different changes that we need to make in our lives? And I think that's been a really wonderful lesson that I think all of us have taken away uh, from, from our talks this morning. Because we are, it's not just that humans were just plopped here, we co-evolved with the environment around us. And the further away we get from that environment, whether it's through lights or travel or processed foods, the more we introduce our bodies to environments that our bodies aren't designed for. I think that's a really critically important message that we've experienced this morning. But, but, we all recognize that the lesson of what we've heard this morning, the recognition that we've co-evolved with our environment doesn't mean that we should aspire to be as natural as possible. If by natural, it means living like our ancestors lived. This morning, I, I woke up early, and I, I went for a run up on the, the smuggler trail. I don't know if I'm pointing to the right <laughs> I went on a run, and it was beautiful. And I think everybody, when you go out and hike in nature, you think, God, this is so wonderful. It feels so great to be nature. But I promise you, your ancestors, if you ask them, what is the thing that you hate the most, that you will avoid at any cost, it was hiking in nature. Because for your ancestors, when you were in your cave, predators were not trying to kill you. And when you went out walking around, that was when you were in danger. So people went out into the forest only when the cost-benefit analysis suggested it was worth the risk. And the reason that we love going out and hiking in what we call nature is that our ancestors have tamed nature. We have transformed nature. We have killed almost all of the predators, which is a terrible tragedy and we have we suffered from it. But we have to recognize that while we must live in balance with nature, we must respect nature, the history of our species, why we are here, is that we have co- evolved with our technology. Our technology is part of us. I mean, in our conversations earlier this morning, 
We talked about a healthy gut, a healthy microbiome. And we saw all of these slides on things that we should eat. And pretty much all of these crops that you have seen. And we talked about our result of selective breeding caught by our ancestors over tens of thousands of years. And then agriculture. These people, these, these local farmers who we talked about, those are radical technologists. I mean, it's been four billion years of life on Earth. We've only had farming for about 12,000 years. Farming is a radical technology that has fundamentally transformed our world. And I say all of this not to poo-poo nature. I love nature. But to recognize the thing that we call nature is in many cases not natural. And so the answer is not to fetishize nature. The answer is not to demonize technology. The answer is to figure out what is the right balance between how we love and respect and support nature, but also how we use these incredibly powerful technologies in ways that can enhance our best values, that can live up to our aspirations of how we would like to behave and how we would like to be as a species, the kind of legacy that we would like to leave behind. And I say all of this as a precursor because I'm about to talk about these fundamental revolutions that are challenging what it means to be a human being. And these are coming as the result of our most powerful technologies, particularly AI and genomics. And we are now at the cusp of the greatest technological revolution in human history, which is going to fundamentally change our lives. And it's not going to fundamentally change our lives at some abstract point in the future. As Shane said, I write science fiction. And so it's easy to say, oh, we're going to be flying around on, on Millennium Falcons, and we'll have Wookiees, and all of that we can just make up. But this future that feels like science fiction is now. We are all futurists. We all have to be science fiction writers, because we are living in an age when science fiction is becoming real. And the genetics and genomics revolution is the first, and in many ways, most significant manifestation for that, because after 3.8 billion years of evolving by random mutation and natural selection, which we call Darwinian evolution, we are beginning a process of directing our own evolutionary process, directed mutation and directed evolution, directed selection. And that is going to change our lives in deep and fundamental ways. When Watson and Crick uh, identified the double helix structure of DNA in the 1950s, what they were doing was identifying that the book of life is structured in the double helix. And when the human genome was first sequenced in 2003, what we were recognizing that that book of life was comprised of these four quote unquote letters, A's, C's, T's, and G's. And now we're at the beginning of the age of human genome editing. Maybe, uh, many of you maybe have heard of CRISPR, which is the latest and best gene editing tool, but it will soon be surpassed by many other better and more precise tools. And when we think about a technology that's readable and writable and hackable, we all think of information technology. And we have internalized this idea that our technology is evolving so rapidly, it's changing so rapidly, so much that if you get a new iPhone or a new TV or a new computer, and it's not significantly better 
than the last version, you feel that you have been cheated because you recognize that technology is variable. And yet, when we think about our own biology, we think of biology as fixed because we know our parents were homo sapiens, our grandparents, our kids, maybe our grandkids, homo sapiens. And yet, why do we think biology is fixed? I said we've had 3.8 billion years of life on this planet. We've only had homo sapiens for about 300,000 years. We've only, we humans, let there be life. We humans, <laughs> we humans have been the only, uh, we've been the only humans on the planet for just 40,000 short years. So we know there has to be a lot of variability in biology, because how else would we have gone from single cell organisms to the complexity of us? And that is what is the key lesson of this, this biotech revolution, is that biology is another form of information technology. And it will increasingly be readable and writable and hackable. And that is going to be expressed to us in some very, very personal ways starting now. The first is something uh, that Momo and others have already talked about today, which is precision medicine. Right now, we live almost entirely in a world of generalized medicine and generalized healthcare. And that is, if you go to any hospital around the world, any quality hospital, any quality, well-educated doctor, you are going to be treated based on the fact that you are a human. So our treatment is based on population averages. And so for most cancer treatments, most drugs, you take it because you have a certain disease, or you seem to have a certain disease, and there's a certain percentage chance it will help you, a chance it will do nothing, and a chance it will kill you. If it doesn't help you, try something else. And so we're moving, as was discussed this morning, from our world of generalized medicine based on population averages to precision medicine based on each person's individual biology. And what that means is when you go for quality healthcare, your doctor, all right, your doctor is going to need to know who you are. And the way the primary, and we've talked about a lot of different sources of information, the most important, ta-da, and I don't need to yell anymore. The most important piece of information is going to be your sequence genome. And so your sequence genome is going to become from just after birth or before, the foundation of your electronic health record. And so when you're treated, you're, if you're going to be given a drug, it's going to be based on your personal biology. And the microbiome, there are other ways of measuring that, but the genome will be the most important. And what that's going to mean is that in very, very short order, many millions and then billions of humans will have their genomes sequenced. So it's estimated that within a decade, two billion humans will have their whole genome sequenced. And what that is then going to do is allow us to have these massive data sets of people, people's genetic or genotypic information and their phenotypic information, means, meaning information about how those genes are expressed through their electronic health and life records. And then humans will become, in many ways, a big data set. And with that knowledge, we are going to be able to increasingly, never completely, but increasingly understand the complexity of human biology. And that is going to very quickly move us from a world of precision medicine and health to predictive medicine and health. And in a world of predictive medicine, you are taking your child home from, your newborn child home from the hospital, and the doctor says, hey, just want to let you know, congratulations, but your child has a 50% greater than average chance 
of developing early onset familial Alzheimer's. If that happens now, and you've got your newborn, say one day old child in your hands, you are irate. How could you tell me that? This child was just born. Uh, your your child. I think we're going to get an announcement. Great. So right now you're pissed off when you have that information, but why should you be? Because if your doctor said your daughter has a 50% greater than average chance of developing breast cancer, wouldn't you want to know that, have that information? Wouldn't you want to start screening your daughter for breast cancer when she was 20 versus 40? We're all going to want that information, and we're going to live in a world where we won't have this kind of certainty, but we will have predictability based on averages. And we're going to have to live with that kind of complexity. And what that's going to do is very quickly move us into a new realm of thinking about genetics. Because we don't have a healthcare genome. We don't have a disease genome. We have a human genome. And for our human genome, it's not telling us just about diseases. Our genome contains the blueprint of who, in many ways, we are and can be. And so we're going to be able to get lots more of information about our risks, our potentials. Not completely, but predictive risks. So imagine this same doctor or somebody coming home from the hospital not just saying your child has the potential or has a risk of breast cancer, but your child has a greater than average chance of being excellent at physics or abstract math. How are we going to think about how we help people realize, help our children realize this innate potential that they may have? while avoiding a dehumanizing genetic determinism. And then the next phase of implementation is going to be a, a fundamental transformation of how we as humans make babies. And we are going to, the reason why I write a lot about the end of procreative sex is we are increasingly going to have less babies through sex and more babies through IVF and embryo screening. And in the beginning, we're going to do that because we're going to be able to significantly reduce uh, the risk of deadly genetic diseases. But we're going to have all of this genetic information. And when making decisions about which of the 10 or 15 pre-implanted embryos in a lab to implant in the mother, we're going to have all this information about disease risk, whether we like it or not, predictive, not perfectly, information about height, IQ, personality style. And so you can see we're cutting very close to the essence of what it means to be a human being. We're touching what we have called fate and destiny. And we're going to have to think about very, very soon how do we deal with that. And then we're going to be able to use existing stem cell technology that's already working uh, in animals to make millions, hundreds of thousands of eggs. Right now, average woman has about 15 eggs extracted in IVF. We're going to be able to use stem cell technologies to take a skin, a skin graft, which has millions of cells, induce those skin cells into stem cells, what are called IPS cells, induced pluripotent stem cells, induce those stem cells into egg precursor cells, egg precursor cells into eggs. And now, let's call it 10,000. You have 10,000 eggs. Average male ejaculation has about a billion sperm cells fertilize 10,000 eggs using an automated process, uh, grow them for about five days, extract a few cells from each of those 10,000 pre-implanted embryos, sequence them, and the process of having a baby 
is the process of saying, well, here are my priorities. So I want optimum health, health span. And then what are the other things that people may want? High IQ, which correlates with a lot of things parents want uh, for their children, personality style. Anything that has a genetic foundation will be selectable. That doesn't mean you'll necessarily get what you select, but this will all be based on, on percentages. And all of this is going to be propelled by the fact that we live in very diverse societies, within societies, even people I see on your faces. Some people are a little more excited. Some people are a little terrified by what I'm saying. And both of them are legitimate responses. And internationally, there are countries like the United States where people are, are a little more squeamish about this, countries uh, like China where they are less so. And we live in this extremely competitive environment. I have a Korean friend. He has 12 tutors a week coming to his house for his 11-year-old daughter. And when I said, if you could select embryos to give your future child a 15-point bump in IQ, would you do it? And he looked at me like I was a lunatic. Like, who wouldn't do that? And there are many other people who would say, well, that's playing God. We should never do that. And because we live in these competitive environments, there are going to be some people in some countries opting in, which is already happening, and there are going to be some people in some countries opting out. And how are we going to think about that? And this is obviously going to raise some fundamental ethical issues. My parents are here in the back of the audience. My father and grandparents came to the United States in 1948 as refugees fleeing Nazism. But if you had asked the Nazis what they were doing, the answer they would have given is we are implementing Darwinism. That's the core of Nazism. And for people like me who are trying to say this science is coming, we need to think of it not as a science question, but as an ethics question, it's really challenging. I was on a panel in Berkeley with this wonderful poet whose life had been defined by his having a daughter with Down syndrome. And it was really difficult for me to say that I, which I believe that in 20 years from now, seeing a child with Down syndrome is going to be like today when you see a child with polio. It's like it's not that it's unnatural to have polio, but you think, wow, so, there was a mix-up. There was a problem. That's why this kid has polio, because kids shouldn't have polio. And kids already in Northern Europe, Down syndrome is pretty much eliminated just because of non-invasive prenatal testing and abortion. So if that's already happening, and abortion is extremely excruciating, when people are making selections about which of their pre-implanted embryos in a lab to implant, you have to assume that people are going to make choices. But those choices, we have to recognize, don't exist in a vacuum. This is not some kind of, of world <clears throat> where it's just objective and valueless. This is all about values. And we're going to have to struggle with issues like equity. Who has access to these incredibly powerful technologies that can change people's lives? Diversity. We think of diversity um, as a way of having better workplaces and better universities, but diversity is much more. Diversity is the sole survival strategy of our species and of every species. Because if we didn't have diversity, it's not that we would still be single-cell organisms. We would be nothing. Because the reason those single-cell organisms evolved into us is that when they faced adversity, there was diversity. So even if we all make decisions that seem like a great idea, like eliminating deadly diseases, if, you're a if you have a sickle cell disease, you're going to die. 
if you're a recessive carrier of the sickle, C, sickle cell mutation, you have increased resistance to malaria. How many, how many uh, diseases or how many, how much carrier status do we have in our bodies that is healthy in a way, but is exposing us to risk now that could be protective in the future. We have no way of knowing it because there's no good and bad in evolution. There's just being particularly well suited for the environment you're in and those environments change. And we are all right at the beginning of this fundamental transformation that is going to change everything. And we can imagine a really good scenario where we use these, these technologies to cure disease, to help us live healthier, longer, more robust lives, to unlock potential of letting people have 10 or 20, 30 more years of, as Sandra was just saying, of brain health. And that, imagine how much love, how much innovation, how much creativity it's going to really help us. And we can also imagine these dystopian outcomes where it's really terrible, where we are making this world much worse. And the difference between the good outcomes and the bad outcomes is us. It's our values. It's how we fight to have our values integrated into the decision-making process that is happening now. So on an individual level, everybody needs to be educated. This is such an important issue. People understand that AI is important. People understand that climate change is important. Very few people understand the genetics revolution. My book, uh, Hacking Darwin, which just came out, actually you can see this little slide of slide coming. Um, yeah, just, and so I've written that, there it is. It's my, my, friend's, my friend's little daughter. Um, it's, des it's designed so if you can read one book to kind of get it, this is it. I don't want you to just read my or any other books, which you should. But once you get educated, everybody has to be a hub of a bigger conversation. You all have your families, your colleagues, your faith communities, and others. And you need to be part of not just talking to people about what's coming, but engaging people in a process of struggling with these issues because there are no easy answers. But we know that the wrong answer is to sit back and say this is somebody else's problem. We need to ask tough questions to our elected officials. What are you doing to try to build a healthy, supportive, regulatory environment that can optimize the good outcomes and minimize the downsides? And we need to all be part of that process. I'm part, as Shane said, of the World Health Organization International Advisory Committee on Human Genome Editing. And in Geneva, we're meeting six times this year, we're really struggling uh, with this issue, and, and we actually put out a, a statement today. But it's not enough for the scientists, for the governments, for the international organizations even, to be making these decisions. What we are talking about is the future of our species, and that is all of our concern. You know, we know how agitated people get on issues like genetically modified crops. We are at the beginning of the era of genetically modified humans. And the genetically modified humans have already shown up. The world's first two gene-edited babies were born in China last year. There's another one that probably has already been born, but if not, will be born in the next couple of weeks. Also in China, a Russian doctor has announced plans. Uh, he has five couples lined up to have more genetically engineered babies. The era of genetically modified humans is here. And it cannot be that 10 years from now, when this hits, when this is the most important issue in the world, all of us say, hey, I wasn't consulted. 
these big decisions have been made about the future of our species, and I wasn't consulted. If that happens, we're going to have riots. The way that we prevent that is everybody being educated, everybody recognizing that we are all hubs, and what we need is a global, species-wide, inclusive dialogue on the future of human genetic engineering that can lead to global norms that can lead to global regulations. It sounds crazy. We heard the, the, the quote uh, earlier about social movements. And we've had some success with issues like chemical weapons and biological weapons and nuclear weapons and even uh, imperfectly with climate change. This is our future. But if we all don't feel the future is up to us, we're going to be in big trouble. Thank you. Yeah.